we always get asked, one, do you condemn Hamas? Two, does Israel have a right to exist? I don't think that's exactly what they're asking. They're asking, do Jews have a right to have a homeland? Of course. And then you get, you know, you get the uh, insults of uh, anti-Semitic, and which is very, very weird as a Semitic person to hear. <laughs> All these galleries are okay with showing political work, but they don't want to be political about this. And it's, you know, there's not really an option for Palestinian artists to not be political. Whatever we're accused of, what they're afraid that we will do, research when they do that to us. Hey everyone, I'm Brianna. And I'm Homer. You're listening to Life on the Margins, an urban native experience. In this episode, live from the Woodward Theater in Cincinnati, we hear from Palestinian activists Sami Ali and Noel Magathy on the parallels between Native, Indigenous, and Palestinian existence and experience. It is important to mention that this episode contains sensitive subject matter and may be triggering to some, so please keep that in mind. Now let's jump into the episode. Sami Ali, um, second generation uh, Palestinian, Jordanian, Spent my entire college career studying history, anthropology, public history. Have uh, my uh, my master's in that as well, uh, and just sort of specified on this topic, just because of who I am. Thanks. Hey everybody, um, I'm Noelle Magathy. Uh, I'm an artist and curator. All of my work, you know, really. Uh, pertains and wants to like educate and engage with the community about Palestine. I think that, sorry guys, getting a little nervous. Uh, No, um, yeah, I always hate talking about myself, but no. um, Yeah, a lot of my work is really focused on Palestine. I'm also a curator and I really like to uh, connect with my community, not just Palestinians, but Arabs in the homeland or in the diaspora uh, and trying to really highlight and connect our community in that way. And it's really important for me. And I feel like it's a really important part of like the arts to uh, do that for our community. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Thank you both so much. We're so grateful that you're here. Um, Homer, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, My name is Homer Shadowheart. I am uh, Susquehanna Chippewa. I am a board member of the United Urban Native Collective. Uh, I'm also the administrative and office manager for Urban Native Collective. Um, I'm a comic actor, an activist, a musician, um, the person who will stand in front of people because I can't be killed. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Homer. And I know so many of our listeners already know who Homer and I are, but just to introduce ourselves again, um, my name's Brianna, and I'm the executive director of Urban Native Collective. I'm Native Chamorro. My family is from the American territory of Guahan, so Guam. Um, yeah, and I'm here today to have this really important conversation. I think we're all here today to have this really important conversation around the parallels between um, Native, Indigenous, and Palestinian identity and our experiences. Um, so to kind of, you know, get started, indigenous people are indigenous to this land here um, as Palestinians are indigenous to theirs. There are connections that have existed since time immemorial, um, since documented history. We share an incredibly intimate knowledge of settler colonialism and mass displacement. These colonial structures have forced us out of our homelands and into the homelands of others. The roots of settler colonial history run deep on Turtle Island and my personal homeland of Guahan, just as they do in Palestine. Um, and so I'd like to you know, open it up, Sammy and Noel, if you can discuss indigenous and Palestinian parallels from not only a historical perspective, but you know, through current day activism and allyship. Um, so <clears throat> before we get, we get into any of that, I've noticed it's kind of hard to retain uh, our stance as indigenous people of Palestine, uh, just to be blunt, when uh, people pick up their Bibles, they don't see our name. And that's how a lot of people get their history of the region is through their religion. Um, From a historical context, when we go all the way back to Canaan, uh, before the kingdom of Israel existed, uh, we have direct ties linguistically, culturally, genetically, uh, back to the uh, canonized, as do Jewish people. And 
going back into uh, today's people through the Arabization through Islam of that region, we've always been the same people. We've just been Arabized and we call ourselves Arabs now. Uh, so, you know, there's over 5 million today, as of 2015, uh, 5 million Palestinians uh, that consider themselves refugees. And um, it's... And there's also millions of Palestinians in Palestine, if you can think about that. Millions of Palestinians in Palestine who are Palestinian refugees because they were removed. Over 500 villages were destroyed mm. in the uh, creation of Israel. Um, and when these villages were destroyed uh, and the Palestinians were displaced, they had to go somewhere. And uh, they were pushed into what we would now call the West Bank, um, places there, and Gaza. 80% of the Gazans are not Gazans. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's been really, really tough to reclaim our ancestry just from that context. Yeah, I think that even just that little bit of context, you know, draws such a poignant parallel between what Native Indigenous people to this land and how much we can relate to what's happening right now. Noel, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's a lot of different parallels. I mean, I was staying at the Shinnecock Reservation this summer um, in, like, the Hamptons area, and I think just being there and for a couple weeks uh, really, I don't know, showed me a different view of another set of parallels in terms of, like, the everyday life and, like, going in and out of the territory as well as, like, the billion dollar homes in this area, just connecting that back to like um, the way Tel Aviv was taken from us and, or we would, didn't even call it Tel Aviv. Um, and just how um, little land we're given on the West Bank uh, in ties uh, to the reservations here in the States. Even um, before the partition plan, one of the gripes of the Arab community it was actually written to the United Nations. It's in their archives. Uh, they didn't oppose Jewish people at all. Their gripe was that they were moved to the barren lands, um, lands without agriculture, lands without industry, moved off of the railroads. Um, and uh, the partition plan in general is weird for us just because the land that you see carved out, you would have... So between 1918 and uh, to the beginning of the state of uh, Israel is 600,000 uh, Jewish people immigrated to Palestine uh, from the 60,000 that were there already. And uh, you cannot bring that many people there and say you do not have an intention to remove the indigenous population out. That's way too much, especially... Um, the first president of Israel said before moving in there that they plan to turn Palestine as Jewish as England as English. And so it's the same thing in my mind as the reservations here on Turtle Island where all these indigenous people are moved into the barren lands. Nothing you can grow there. There's no industry. And you're meant to just sit on these reservations and rot, which is exactly what Gaza is, is what they turned it into. Uh, open-air prison, every person born, you have to register to the state of Israel. Uh, all the food, the drinks, everything. Like, Israel denied the uh, chocolate to be imported into Gaza. Uh, everything comes from the government, which is Israel. And it's the same thing for indigenous peoples of the way that they get their aid, or if you want to call it that. Um, so it's for those, like, parallels of just purposely moving people into these lands that are inhospitable for human life and the people who are taking it know that. It's an unfortunate parallel. Yeah, I feel like, you know, there's also parallels of the way we treat the land and um, the way we, we nurture it and want to connect to it. Um, and, you know, the urbanization of this land and the the erasure of villages uh, and I think we call it greenwashing where we plant they Israel has planted all of these non-native plants over entire villages that have been erased and I think about you know this land we're on and just it's 
a full city and, you know, what was under this prior and, you know, what we changed from it. Well, it's, you know, it's the same thing with indigenous people here. They said they didn't know how to take care of the land or utilize the land fully. And so they took it from the indigenous people on Turtle Island. And it's the same thing when the Zionists came to Palestine, uh, you know, uh, a land without people, for people for like it's, it was the same thing. They gave, they made the desert flourish. Um, you know, and one of the uh, startling images that you'll see from uh, Palestine before the uh, invasion of Zionism was m movie theaters, cars, airports, um, trains, which admittedly a lot of those were Ottoman. Uh, but that's, that's the same thing. They would just, the land's not being utilized the way that they would see as Manifest Destiny would say. There's, it's so interesting, right, um, as we look for parallels between native indigenous to Turtle Island and then to the island territories and how militarized occupation on Hawaii and on Guam and other spaces that the U.S. has imperial rule of um, and just what it looks like to be an indigenous person to a like active, militar militarized, occupied place mm -hmm. and um, how much of an impact that can have, how dangerous it is to like live in that place. And, um, you know, there's always this idea that like, well, those people don't know how to care for the land best or we know better. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as a native indigenous to Guahan, like I see my people directly impacted every day by like the military government and their idea of better as I know my relatives here on Turtle Island, you know, like someone else claimed to know better set that settler colonial mindset of um, occupation and um, Western um, progression. Um, and it is, as we know, like deeply impacts our communities, deeply erases our communities. Um, I mean, even when we get into modern activism now with, you know, since October 7th, uh, when the world, you know, the, it's insulting when, you know, I, I hear uh, people talk about um, Hamas, you know, Hamas brought this uh, down on the Palestinians. It's, uh, you know, Hamas doesn't care. And I was just like, well, you guys didn't care before that. It didn't start on October 7th for us. Well over 60,000 Palestinians were killed before Hamas existed in 1987. Millions were expelled before Hamas existed in 1987. Um, and these aren't figures of everyday life, these are like event figures, like quote unquote wars. Not, you know, some random Palestinian walking through a checkpoint the wrong way and then they get hit in the head with a bullet. Uh, th that doesn't calculate that. Uh, so it's, what happened to, what's happening, but also happened to the people here on uh, Turtle Islands happening in real time in Palestine. It's unfortunate that you, you get a glimpse into history over there about what happened here. And um, it's, sorry. Um, okay. No, you're good. I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that plays a part in just really like, you know, like he said, like everything is being broadcasted live for us right now. I mean, there's... There's no way to refute kind of what's happening. We are seeing it from perspectives of people in Gaza and in what they're going through every day. And it's not, I don't know, I'm thinking about, you know, there's not, for me, there's not much of an argument to be had right now on um, opinions and, and what's what's the truth right now. We're, we're just literally seeing this happen. I mean, there's no editing going on in these videos. There's no people acting. This is, this is real life. People are displaced. They're living in tents right now. I mean, the weather's been getting so bad for them. They're having to take water out of their tents every day. You know, this, this is not, this is not, a, I don't know. Like, well, and then there's also weird evidence that we have to use in order for people to believe certain things. Mm -hmm. 
So when the United States, for example, says that Israel doesn't target Palestinian civilians, we all know that they do. But there's weird evidence for people who don't believe that. Uh, like the three Israeli hostages that were just gunned down, for yeah. example. Uh, they were shirtless, as I understand it. They had white flags, and they were shouting for help in Hebrew. And they were not bombed of collateral damage. They were shot by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And they said that they mistook them for Palestinians. If you're mistaking them for Palestinians and they're shirtless with white flags unarmed, you're not mistaking them for Hamas. So, and this happens constantly. Um, and then when it's brought up, we hear, you know, well, there's always going to be rogue soldiers. There's always going to be rogue soldiers. And I'm just waiting for... They're not to be a rogue Yeah, a non-rogue soldier, like <laughs> yeah. somewhere. Well, there, there have, to, to some people's defense, there have been people, uh, Zionists, who have woken up and embraced their true Judaism. And... Uh, deeply regret everything that they saw and everything that they did, things that they were deceived from when they were taken on their birthright tours. And, um, you know, I, I don't, if you wake up and you see what's happening and you advocate against it, I, I don't have any animosity for you. I just want to meet some of those, more of those people. I've already, yeah. 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 When you, you and I have spoken, you know, the, we keep hearing this called a war and you can't have a war if only one side has a military. Yeah. Palestine doesn't have an army. Never has. They don't have an air force. They don't have the Marines. They don't have a Navy. Israel has all of that. They're doing all the attacking. This is an attack, not a war. And, you know, it's people bring up Hamas's arms and, you know, any group of civilians that pick up guns are called militants. Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, you and I were talking about some people who were uh, all over, uh, your accounts. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and I looked at one of these people's uh, stuff and I saw them really, really romanticizing Geronimo. And Geronimo attacked towns. And I don't believe he was ever a bad person. I think that he saw his land being taken away and he wanted his land back. Mm. No way, you know, talking about, you know, any kind of innocent life is precious, no matter who they are. Absolutely. But you cannot put people in an... I call it, I've called it an open-air prison for a long time. Uh, fellow indigenous people uh, you know, have made an argument that it's actually a reservation, just because of the parallels. And, I think uh, they're the same thing. They're the same thing. <laughs> same thing, yeah. You can't put all those people... If you want to talk about human shields... You move these people, you desecrate their villages and move them into this place and put barbed wire and a huge wall around it and then just put civilians where those people used to live and retract the military away from there. Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? You know, as we talk about like land back and like history from our perspective in many ways mm -hmm. um, and then what's happening in real time now and that the parallels are almost inarguable um, to what has happened to indigenous people here uh, in the Americas. Yet everyone seems to not seem to understand like how history is repeating itself today. And we continue to see people, society, turn a blind eye to that while simultaneously just to be completely honest, continue to support organizations like ours as if it's different, you know, in thinking about the phrase from the river to the sea and in thinking about a phrase that we as Native people say so frequently, you know, land back. It's not, you know, how similar those statements are and how similar these parallels are, yet because Native Indigenous people to the Americas are so often spoken about as a past tense, and what is happening in Palestine right now is happening now. Um, we're okay to romanticize Native Indigenous people to Turtle Island and the Americas versus show well, they don't, support. They don't think that you're ever going to get your land back. That's why they support it. Most of these people would never get out their houses. Uh, so it's easier for them to say land back, land back, go home, buy McDonald's, and go back to your house. They don't ever expect Indigenous people to get their land back. 
Yeah, so it's easier yeah, it's thought easier. of yeah. as an academic construct yeah. than it is actionable things that we can do. Yeah. It's more of a punchline than a movement. Mm -hmm. it's, it's to prop yourself up on a moral pedestal when you don't actually have to do anything about it. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd gladly live in an indigenous person's shed. <laughs> like, if I have to leave a home and give it back to them, like, I'll, I'll live right next door to you. It's yeah. fine. Well, it continues to perpetuate this erasure of indigenous people, the Turtle Island and the Americas, yeah. while simultaneously continuing to romanticize them as historical figures and not current contemporary people yeah. living here in Cincinnati and all over the country and all over the world today. And when you, you know, when you perpetuate this language and this mentality of I'm going to say land back, but I'm not going to support Palestine. Like, yeah. well, Sammy, you could move into the house. You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's more of a gesture. <laughs> but no, from the river to the sea now has been taken out of context as a genocidal phrase is like what I hear. I didn't know how quickly this thing got turned into a genocidal phrase. Just for context of my background, my mother grew up with Palestinian Jews, Palestinian Jewish Samaritans. From river to the sea, like for her, it means to go back to that lifestyle. It doesn't mean to, and I said this to you before, the mm -hmm. only reason why certain people think of it that way is because that's how they got it from us. They can only think of it in that context. Yeah. Uh, for us, it literally, that's why one of our symbols is a key. We want to put the key back in our door and walk back into our house. Right. The only reason why it seems genocidal to other people is because they don't want that to happen and they would like to stop us from coming home. You don't have to stop us from coming home. You know, you don't have to build another country on top of another one if you want a home. Mm -hmm. uh, that's never been what that phrase stood for. And it, like I said, it only stands for that because they can only look at it from their perspective. Right. Well, and when all you know is a market economy that, you know, if land back means you're taking the land back, that's all I can comprehend in my Western market economy mentality that I have of like, well, if I don't have it, then you have it. Yeah. And if you have it, then I'm going to take it from you. Like there's, they can't suspend their idea of what it means because all they know is what they've done. Yeah. To, to you or to us. or And so to be able to suspend that, to believe that this phrase, you know, what we're working for could mean something completely other is hard. Like they can't, people can't do it when like they're in this settler colonial mindset, when they're living in Western society, they don't understand how the way that we got here doesn't need to be the way that we return back to, you know, the way it was. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 The propaganda against Palestinians has always been there. Mm -hmm. And we always say that whatever we're accused of or what they're afraid that we will do, whatever they're saying, research when they did that to us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm thinking about that too. You just made me think about um, Miko Pilet and yeah. one of his books talking about how Palestinians are taught in Israeli schools and how similar, you know, that was for, I think, both of us in terms of growing up here and learning about native natives and uh, their experience and just being fed complete lies and um, learning about Thanksgiving and all of this and how similar it was for us in that way and how we had to kind of, you know, unlearn that as we grew. And it's important to be able to give, I guess, that generation of like young folks in Palestine right now that are, have only been fed this information about uh, Palestinians to be able to like give them that compassion and, and time to like unlearn this and like uh, realize like the truth and the actual history of like what's happened and to be able to make those connections on their own. Well, I mean, even with like the books here, when we, <laughs> the books here would like, you, you guys shouldn't exist according to the American books. You guys should be dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, trust me. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, even my cousin's books in Jordan changed. Not in Palestine, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria. All those books changed uh, from like when my uh, parents were kids, where they learned about the ancient histories and things like that. It's changed now. Mm. It's like it's trying to cut Palestine out of the history. Well, and it's, it's like the education system here. We don't teach real history. 
it's very whitewashed. Mm -hmm. And the fear is that if we learn about the atrocities, we might rise up, but they don't understand. We're not, from their brutality, we've learned compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Not brutality. Yeah. Yeah. And in thinking about, you know, the various, just the countless obstacles that you all face, like in the media and in society, what roles can alternative platforms like this podcast or other opportunities uh, and, and media like that play in amplifying your voices and the voices of your community? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important right now for us to to have that solidarity. And I think not only like within the Arab and Palestinian community, but like I think everyone is starting to realize, you know, the news that people see on TV is not you know, what's happening. And we can't always rely on that. Uh, We can't rely on it the majority of the time, but that uh, it has to be from our community in this way. Like we know we can kind of trust those sources and know that we're going to be, be shared with like unbiased information of like real experiences. Um, I don't know, for me, I think it's really important to have that solidarity within with you guys and and to be able to ha- be on here is like such an honor to be able to like mm-hmm. hold this space together. Yeah. Um, I think the honor is ours, but yeah, thank you for sure. Thanks, Noel uh, framed it perfectly. Like even when I was talking to my aunt a few days ago and telling her about the protests that we have here, she almost couldn't believe it mm-hmm. because you know for she. Like my mom had to walk on foot from Palestine to Jordan. You know, they literally, they saw people melt from uh, napalm dropping on uh, the people in the village. Um, They, uh, you know, there's people who fled back to Palestine when they were working abroad to come see what happened to their families. Uh, And, you know, my mom remembers at 11 years old, uh, these people were like, hey, they, they shot us. They killed some of us up on this hill there when we we're trying to check on our homes, the IDF. Um, so it gives people like that a lot of hope to be on platforms like this and having people listen to us and um, just finally having a voice. You know, it's, I'm not, not going to say where my place of employment is, but, you know, when people look at my personal social media and they go to my boss and things like that, it's, it speaks to, um, for one, half the stuff I post anyway gets taken down. Mm. So you do not have to worry. Meta's on your side. <laughs> uh, two, um, it shows just how used to us not having a voice they are. Sure. Uh, like, like they know that we don't have a voice. They want to keep right. it that way. Right. So having support like this and um, just having little little specks of uh, solidarity here and there just come up to a, it just, it, it does so much. Right. Right. And I, I see it happening more frequently yeah. too. Just, um, unfortunately platforms like the big ones, like meta and, and others, um, are very quick to typically shut down a lot of that language. But, you know, I believe that, you know, what I'm seeing on social media and where I'm seeing allyship form and uplift Palestinian voices is in the masses. And that's really wonderful to see that. Um, It really is in just kind of crafting ways that we can create any, if any, substantial, meaningful change through all of this. Um, you know, I sometimes am really hard pressed to even know what the next step is or what to do tomorrow because it can be so overwhelming to even just find joy in something. And so, you know, in thinking about what meaningful, substantial change looks like, regardless of how small, like what are some things that come to mind for you all? Representatives is one. But also just in terms of like action plans, of course, you're going to have to talk to your representatives. You're going to have to, you know, make noise mm-hmm. uh, anywhere that you can in that aspect, whether it's an email, whether it's a phone call, showing up to uh, showing up to protests, uh, doing your homework and education and anything like that would help. Uh, it's it's not a common thing for them to get phone calls like that. Uh, about Palestine, it's usually if you look at uh, a lot of their donations and where they come from, from all of these like Zionist lobby groups, 
individual politicians getting four hundred thousand uh, dollars, three hundred thousand dollars, and I forgot what figure I saw earlier today it was like four million. Just make those phones ring off the hook. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like you made a lot of great points there, and I think just I feel like seeing that change in in everyday conversation, not being able to like be afraid to have conversations about this, and to feel like we have to tiptoe around our identity and, you know, afraid to even, like, share, you know, where you're from in that way. Um, I don't know. I think a lot uh, just about having that community grow. And I think, like you were saying, like, I think in the masses, like, we, we see more global support than we ever have before. And I think for our parents um, and that generation, like, it's it's really life-changing I mean I think there's definitely a wave of like hope but understanding that like it'll go back to normal you know my dad is very hesitant um but you know I told him I said I really feel things are changing I really think you know we're gonna see something from this in our lifetime you know I really feel there's like hope for that in the way that we've mobilized together and are continuing to grow and 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 not let this kind of bring us down even in day 76 you know this is yeah. Well, my mom, like, what she said to me was, I don't want anything to happen to you because of me. And I had to tell her that she didn't do anything besides get kicked out of her house. Yeah. And walk across to another country. And, you know, I've already been uh, assaulted once, you know. Well, it was a bad attempt at an assault, but it was an assault nonetheless. Um, you know, since this happened. And... uh my mom went through her entire, not entire, but most of her life telling people she was Jordanian, not Palestinian, mm. just to avoid stuff like that. But she's starting to, you know, she's starting to see the support. Uh, we're getting, I think more importantly than anything, we, we have a lot of Jewish support, you know, uh, and individual uh, Jewish people reaching out to her and uh, reassuring her and especially for like the Jewish community that's reaching out to us and showing their support for Palestine. It's for me, just as big as it is for uh, the indigenous support, the Jewish outpour of support is equally important for us. And that's been a huge boost for us while this has been happening. It's gotta be so powerful. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Especially like I said, my mom grew up with indigenous Jewish people in her homeland in Palestine they consider themselves either Palestinian Jews or Palestinian Israelites. And, you know, she used to complain that they were not in school on Saturday. They had Sabbath. <laughs> it's the same reason why she wasn't in school on Friday. And so, yeah, it's, that's, that's the Judaism she was familiar with growing up. And so no matter what she saw uh, Israel do to her and her villagers, that's what she taught us Judaism was. Just it is not parallel to Zionism. Yeah. yeah. So the support from that community has been huge. Yeah, I feel like you know seeing the direct actions from our Jewish allies all over, but especially in like bigger cities like New York. Like uh, it's I really been like so moving to to see that um, that support and them really wanting to be there and say like no, we're not. This isn't in our name. This is. We're not going to allow this to happen in the name of Judaism. And it's really powerful. And what I feel closest to in that way, you know, it's really um, moving. I don't know if, in like, the stories that they tell us about what they were taught when they were growing up, that, you know, we bought Palestine. Or it's the same thing, it's another parallel. Uh, we bought the indigenous land. Uh, from the owners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Um, they a lot of a lot of them started to wake up that it was it's purely an imperialist colonial thing, not an ethnicity, and not a religious. It has nothing to do with that. No, yeah. No, well, how have you used your artwork to speak out about Palestine? Yeah, um, I feel like a lot of my work uh, talks about the yearning for the land as someone who was born in the States and, and my dad immigrated here um, in his 20s. 
Um, I did want to actually go back to, you know, this parallel of like Sammy's parents being forced out um, in the 60s. And my dad was a toddler at the time. And I remember him sharing this story with me that he was basically almost left in a cave to die because he was about three years old and they were going to have to walk from our home to Jordan because uh, my grandfather was in Jordan with my dad's brothers. And so they were going to leave my dad, a toddler, um, just to die because they had no other choice to carry, you know, a toddler through this. And you're thinking about what's happening on Gaza right now. But, you know, this has happened before. And ultimately, my family decided to stay and my dad stayed. And my father, my grandfather and his brothers came back home. And we still have our house in Halhul. But, uh, you know, like two things were happening at the same time and that's just two stories and um you know I wouldn't have been here if they decided to go to Jordan I you know who knows what would have happened to my father in that time and I think that relates to like why I make work about Palestine um because it's so entwined in my experience as well as being here in a city where not a lot of people know about Palestine um I'm usually the first Palestinian they've ever met and um, I just felt like a really urgent feeling to be able to like have to make work to to educate to express my um, my emotions toward this, but not only that, but to connect myself to the land, to connect myself, to bring myself peace, but also to like bring people closer to the land as well and understand it in um, different aspects uh, through through performance, um, through sculpture. Uh, I think. A lot of different ways about how I can speak about um, the atrocities that have happened that are still happening. Uh, yeah, I also think I try to use curating and organizing events and exhibitions with other Palestinian artists as areas for us to uh, be able to connect and grow and um, also connecting to like this bit of censorship that we've been feeling within um, the art world, but all of the world. But for me as an artist, I've seen it specifically within the art world um, where we can't speak about Palestine. Now it's a controversial thing to talk about, to have in work uh, when, you know, all these galleries are okay with showing political work, but, mm -hmm. but this is an issue because they don't want to be political about this. And it's, you know, there's not really an option for Palestinian artists to not be political. This is for any Palestinian. It's it's in our identity. It's it's a reaction and the look on someone's face when we tell them we're Palestinian, and and us trying to read that and navigate. You know, okay, what does that mean, and how do we continue with that? But uh, yeah, it's a lot about um, that connection to the land and and trying to bring others that don't know anything. Uh, to, to draw them in, to have them leave with more questions that bring them on another path to, like, educate them in that way. Yeah. How do you feel that the uh, indigenous people and Palestinian people are similar in their use of art? I think Tetris, of course, is one that um, we can speak on, and that's Palestinian embroidery. And that's where um, we will embroider into our thobes, our long dresses, but they embroider into a lot of different things. Um, but we, they typically have motifs and patterns that will share stories. And this has gone back for several years, which I sh think you might be able to touch on a little bit if you want to share a bit of the history of Tatris. That's no, all you. okay, no worries. <laughs> well, I don't know how much actual history like I can give about that, but like, yeah, we, um, there's a long role of the way that we uh, use these dresses and embroidery to resist in different ways. Um, we have certain patterns on the dresses that symbolize different things that showed different things that maybe we had been restricted from. Um, you know, there's definitely periods of time where we weren't allowed to have a flag um, in Palestine. And in that time period, we had a lot of uh, not only just like the colors represented of the flag, but actually embroidering the flag onto the dresses and I don't know, connecting us back and resisting in that way. And I know through the indigenous uh, community, like beadwork is another way that um, a lot of indigenous uh, communities use to tell stories in that way. And I think that's another like similar way of how we um, kind of connect on that level in terms of resistance in art and culture. Yeah. Um, I, I am the descendant of someone that survived a massacre. And uh, 
out traveling the country doing comedy. I was up in Michigan recently and was talking to two native ladies who uh, are very involved in the community and, and told me, and I'm sorry, um, told me that they have a dance uh, that depicts the massacre. And uh, one... Take your time. One woman will dance around the circle and start tapping people. And the circle gets smaller and smaller until she's the last person dancing. And I, I didn't know that before. Um, it, was, it was news to me. And, you know, I had to go, gosh, are there onions on everything in this place? Because, um, uh, but, you know, and the dance is, is how we tell our stories. It's how we pray. It's, it's mm -hmm. how we, we, our culture is celebrated. And I think that's, I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure that's very similar in the, in the uh, Palestinian community. Yeah, yeah. We have like Debka and Debka and even um even away just from like arts, um even some things as simple as trees, just the olive trees passed mm -hmm. down for generations, uh centuries and centuries, centuries old. Uh even my my mom's family on the West Bank, you, you would go harvest the uh, olives and though those trees are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. And uh, there's a very famous picture of an elderly Palestinian woman uh, in tears wrapping herself around an olive tree. With, uh, and there's an Israeli Defense Force uh, armored vehicle in the background with soldiers because uh, they would assist settlers as they uproot the trees. Um, and, you know, so there's, there's things... Things in our community uh, like that as well. The kofia, the thing around my neck right now, is another thing where we've, we've worn this since Mesopotamian times. But in terms of modern day uh, resistance, the resistance fighters against the English and the Zionists would wear the kofia. And in order for Palestinians to protect the rebels, we all wore it. So you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, um, and yeah, of course Arafat like wore it and just became a symbol just for Palestinians ever since. So, and you know the patterns like olive branches and bro mm -hmm. and all of that, uh, which is it is actually attached to art too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like the symbol of the key, mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, return of home, the olive trees, the fruit. You know, just these relationships to the land. So many Palestinian artists uh, use food in their work and, and just imagery of the land. And I think we all have this sense of yearning, right. um, wanting to connect back to home, wanting to return home. There's this sense of resistance and the symbolism, but also this beauty that connects us to who we are, um, pre-colonialism or mm -hmm. pre-active attempt at colonialism um, in our jewelry and our dress and, mm -hmm. um, you know, for my people too, like our, our tattoos and um, the symbols that in, in ways that we express ourselves, mm -hmm. um, that every little line um, stitch has a meaning uh, that connects us. And it's so difficult sometimes to find joy in that resistance. And yet we use these avenues to find joy. Like, um, I consider myself an artist, but I am also a rock climber. And there is a community of Palestinian rock climbers who are just awesome. Um, and there have been some pretty profound, you know, nationally known like climbing film uh, companies that have amplified their voices as of recently. And, you know, as someone who has the privilege to like go climbing and go to the climbing gym and like recreate like that, every day if I wanted to, I, I have the privilege to be like, oh, climbing sucks sometimes. Like, I don't, you know, like, it doesn't matter. And there's this beautiful film called Resistance Climbing um, by a Palestinian climber in the community. And he goes back to his homeland and he 
meets these Palestinian community members and this climbing community that um, has evolved there. And they just talk about the joy that they found in rock climbing on their homelands and also, you know, that it connects them to their humanity. And it's the thing that they can do to find reason in life when, you know, in this film simultaneously, like shots are being fired and bombs are going off in the background. And you're just like almost shook shook because this is happening in real time on this film. And yet these people are finding ways to find joy. And I imagine, I can only imagine that art and dance and these other ways in which we show up to resist because at the same time, these Palestinians in this film that live there are like climbing right below settler housing um, that the, these people are living there illegally, yet they're like actively resisting this settler colonial, um, you know, these people that are like living here illegally while climbing and like finding this way, this, this recreational activity to find joy in. And it's, like deeply saddening to me, but also like so redemptive of like being able to find joy in the midst of terrible, terrible hardship and oppression. And I, I guess, you know, with that resistance, like, can you talk about like the joy that you do find in your artwork through the pain, you know, uh, that we all relate to so deeply? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard. I feel like every time I'm making work, uh, I'm, I have a rush of so many different emotions that I feel like are just embedded into the the pieces, the wax that I'm dipping. And I think, yeah, connecting to people back home uh, really is what I think makes it important for me, um, learning about artists that are making work in the land and, and using the materials that we have. And I think that's, yeah, really important for me um, a couple years ago, I was doing poetry readings here in the city, uh, zooming in like poets from Gaza and uh, the Gaza Poets Society. And so there were several events here and I got to connect with their founder. And I think it's so it's so important and so impactful for us to be able to like have those moments of togetherness that for me energize me in terms of like my creation and, and the works that I want to make um, I don't know. We lost uh, so many artists, so many writers mm -hmm. in the past few months. Uh, it's really heartbreaking. Uh, you can't can't put words into it when you think about like uh, I had a friend Heba Heba Zagut. She's a painter, and she was killed. She lived in North Gaza, and she was killed like early, like maybe like late like November, um, and uh, I was thinking about her work and thinking like, oh, I wonder if we could bring them somewhere and show them, and it's like, everything's destroyed. Her whole life's destroyed. Her family is gone with her, and, um, and the poet Rifat, uh, who was just assassinated a couple weeks ago, um, you know, like, we're all writing because, we're all making, creating, because we... This is the only way we know how to express ourselves. I'm not a great talker. I mean, you know, you might notice that here, but... Uh, You're um, doing great. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I speak through my work, and I think a lot of us as artists, we speak through our work. And um, to just think that um, so many lives were uh, taken from us, not just artists, everybody, all types of people with different dreams and passions, and um, thinking about how we kind of, we don't, we don't get to see those works. We don't get to see what else they may have created and um, what the future had for them. And I feel like that also gives me energy in ways that I want to like be able to preserve their work and uh, and honor them in different ways that I can through my work. Uh, I don't know. There's so many uh, feelings. It's really hard to talk about. <laughs> this is, but yeah. you know, so important and you know, as we talk about art and we think about expression and we talk about the land and just what is happening in Palestine, this destruction. And then we also hear this really complicated narrative around the Jewish homelands. Like, um, can you talk a little bit about that? 
So one of the questions uh, we always get asked, one, do you condemn Hamas? Two, does Israel have a right to exist? I don't think that's exactly what they're asking. What they're asking, and, but they're not saying it in their words, they're asking, do Jews have a right to have a homeland? Of course, uh, 100%, everyone does. Uh, and a lot of Jewish people did have the homeland way before the 20th century in Palestine. They never left. If you're asking about that birth, and I would not call it a Jewish homeland, I would call it a Zionist homeland. It, I, would, I would have to, any entity that is birthed on the heads of an indigenous population and forms into an apartheid state where if you're a Palestinian and you walk on the wrong side of the road, you're in jail. If you throw a rock at a tank that just blew up a house, you're in prison indefinitely. I don't think an entity like that has a right to exist anywhere. I don't care who you are. I have the same uh, opinion on the uh, colonization of South Africa and the apartheid there. I have the same opinion on central colonialism on Turtle Island, uh, on Australia, New Zealand. Do Jewish people deserve a homeland? That is a different question. Right. Uh, and the answer to that is yes. And they, they had one with us. But it tends to, at least in conversation it these tends, days. Yeah. yeah, it definitely, it tends to, and that's, the wires, the wires cross purposefully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you get, you know, you get the uh, insults of uh, anti-Semitic, which is very, very weird as a Semitic person to hear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, my name in Arabic, literally, one of the definitions means Semite. Um, Zion, and it just goes to show Zionism and Judaism are not parallel. There's, there's a reason why thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people left when the state of Israel was created because they lived in community with the Arabs. They loved their culture as Palestinian Jews or Palestinian Israelites. And they did not care for the Zionist approach because the Zionist approach countered what they believed in mm -hmm. as Jewish people. If there, was a, uh, if there was a Jewish state within Palestine and everyone lived in a one-state solution with everybody living together, absolutely. But on top of other people's heads and uh, removing 750,000 people when, the, when it's first born, no. Mm -hmm. And then another 300,000 people in 1967, no. Right, right. So, you know, maybe one last question we can talk about as we near the end of our time. You know, what are some call to actions that the both of you might want to share uh, call to actions to the non-Palestinian and non-Indigenous communities. What are, you know, it, I think a next step or an action item mm -hmm. feels overwhelming, um, but what are some things that feel practical? Like, you know, there's that phrase, like you eat an elephant one bite at a time, and that's very much what it feels like <laughs> because that feels impossible. <laughs> um, Wait, uh, we have elephant? I heard they taste horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what is yeah? What is something yeah. that comes to mind? I feel definitely um, communicating with your local representative representatives um, and pushing for you know more people to be calling for a ceasefire. But um, in the long run, like you know, getting involved in the community. Uh, you know, we have the Cincinnati Palestine Solidarity Coalition. Mm -hmm. You know, um, locally, like what can we do? Um, as well as like informing yourself on on the history of Palestine and, and what's been happening there. You know, we plan to have some public events through the Palestine um, Coalition um, in the future, ne early next year. But, um, you know, what are other ways that you can get in touch with, like, um, people that are speaking about uh, Palestine, you know, there's uh, several journalists that have been um, in Gaza like this whole time sharing every day their experiences. Motaz, um, Bissan, um, Palista, she uh, left, but there's there's lots of resources for people to kind of 
uh, gain that understanding. Um, Jewish Force for Peace, there's another organization that's pretty new, Jews Against White Supremacy. Um, definitely, like, other people to uh, be going to for information. We're all, you know, in this for the same goal of a liberation of uh, Palestine and um, definitely getting connected to those orgs and information is really important right now. A lot of the... I can't really add much to that. So sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's a good problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like what I said. I, I said it earlier too. It's just uh, and just reach out to your representatives. Mm -hmm. uh, reach out to these. Um, reach out to these organizations. Um, hopefully, we're not to spread out and doing our own things separately. Um, yeah, I can't add much to what you did. Well, is there anything you know that we didn't talk about that the both of you? you know, really want to share? Um, there is an article I yeah. did want to do, read because sure. I feel like it goes directly into a parallel. So this is just one example, and they decided to make an article about this one. Uh, this is about the IDF um, finding out, or I should say publicizing. Uh, this also, um, just an alert here, this is going to, go into sexual assault. If that's triggering for anybody, I just want everyone to know. Um, it was about a young Bedouin girl uh, who was between age, just uh, mid-teens, underage. Uh, in this article, it says, uh, it was decided and carried out. Uh, they washed her, cut her hair, raped her, and killed her. After that case, uh, became one of the state's earliest secrets. And as they, uh, they go into all these details that I'm not going to go into, but there was as many as 20 soldiers chanting, we want to F, we want to F. Mm. Um, and then when it uh, went into court, what they said was they did not convict him, this commander of rape. They committed uh, for murder and gave him 15 years only. Um, and this Palestinian girl was uh, gang raped by 20 soldiers uh, over the course of three days and buried in a shallow grave in the desert that was less than a foot deep. Um, he told the court he doesn't consider it uh, intercourse because he can't imagine it would, could be called such a thing with an individual that was so dirty. Um, and... That is pretty much how they thought of us. And then when, you know, this is 1949, uh, you know, a, a year after the Nakba, uh, the catastrophe of the Palestinians, and that we hear stories like this one of women's breasts being cut off and running into villages and saying, if you guys don't leave, this is what's going to happen here. Uh, and to this day, a lot of Zionists say, no, the uh, Palestinians did not want to live with Jewish people, so they left their homes and went somewhere else. I don't think anyone believes 700,000 to a million people just left because they didn't want to live with somebody. And the parallel there, for one, just the leaving and going into different places, 5 million refugees uh, in total as of 2015, just you know, screams all the different trails of tears on uh, Turtle Island, uh, and um, how they viewed uh, indigenous women on this land where they did not see it as rape because these people are subhuman. Uh, they're dirty, they're lower than us. Even today, uh, there is, I don't know if he's an official or a religious figure, um, but who says it is okay for that to happen because the soldiers get stressed. Uh, and as, as long as it happens to the other population, it's, it's okay. Uh, so that's another thing when we go into, especially all the falsehood stories that we heard on, on October 7th. Everything that they say that we have done, look into the history and figure out when they did it to us. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Sammy. It's so important to highlight this and highlight just the deep parallels that run between our communities. 
and it's hard to talk about. <laughs> um, I'm not going to pretend like this was an easy conversation yeah. um, to have, but it's so important that for us as people, as a native community that is curating a podcast to amplify voices in our community that we sit here and we give you the mic, the both of you, the mic to be able to share your stories. And a lot of that, most of that is pain and that is reality um, that we as communities face every day and it's authentic Mm -hmm. and it's hard to talk about and hard to listen to. But I, for one, am deeply grateful for the both of you for sharing and educating, and mm-hmm. I'm grateful that I was that we are able to be here to lift up your voices. And I hope that as we sit here as as representatives, as two people within a such a large indigenous community, that we can continue to amplify your voices. Thank you both so so much. Those of us who hold native blood fight for our relatives in Palestine because we know all too well the pain and hardships brought on by settler colonialism and the violence of occupation. Our elders teach us that experiences last with us for seven generations, and now even Eurocentric psychology has shown this to be true. This pain will last with the children of those who are being martyred today just as the drive to fight is with us from when our ancestors were martyred. This is why from Turtle Island to our island relations, we stand with our Palestinian relatives and refuse to not lift up and make their voices heard. For more information on ways to get involved and learn about what's happening in our community, give the Cincinnati Palestine Solidarity Coalition a follow on social media and be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast episode so our friends' voices reach the masses.